0: Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast of the Russia and Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Olga Oliker, here in the CSIS studio with my co-host, Jeff Mankoff.
1: Dobro
0: Uh, in this episode of Russian Roulette, uh, Jeff sat down with Maxim Suchkov. Uh, Maxim is the editor of Al-Monitor's, um Russia mideast coverage and also a non-resident expert at the Russian International Affairs Council and the Valdai International Discussion Club.
1: Yeah. And we're going to talk about the conflict in Syria and Russia's diplomacy uh, towards finding a resolution to that conflict.
0: Uh, so really, really good conversation. Uh, let's get started.
1: I'm here in the studio today with Maxim Suchkov, who is the editor for uh, Middle East coverage at Almonitor. Uh, he's also a non-resident expert at the Russian International Affairs Council and the Valdai International Discussion Club. Max, welcome to Russian Roulette. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, Russia in the Middle East has been a, a topic <laughs> that's uh, piqued a lot of interest here in the United States recently. Um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, sort of where we are in terms of Russia's intervention in Syria, and maybe,
2: you know, what we should expect uh, mm-hmm. ahead? Right. I think at the at the end of the last year, the major kind of objective uh, on the table for the Kremlin was to end this uh, large-scale hostilities. And it partially, I think, was uh, fixed with these de-escalation zones, even though by the, by the beginning of this year, we, we see uh, they aren't really functioning in in, in, in some places, and uh, I think for now the major kind of objective is to kind of get it on the track for political settlement, and it's a little bit difficult to see how you how you get to it with the and I think for now uh, the the kind of the pet project is this uh, Syrian national dialogue in Sochi that everyone is 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 working on is. Busy talking about and preoccupied. Uh, I think initially the idea for the Syrian National Dialogue was to to make it uh, kind of a uh, adjacent mechanism for for the Geneva. And then, when as they, they saw that the Geneva wasn't functioning, and uh, some of these up Syrian opposition groups started. You know, uh, talking about not going to Sochi and participating. I think that there was this t- temptation in Moscow to kind of turn it into Astana 2.0, mm-hmm. and well, you have the outside powers right, talking where, about the solution without absolutely. the Syrians, right? Because initially, you know, that when you when you listen and talk about uh, what this Sochi Congress uh, was going to be, you see that like, uh, Lavrov and others were proposing. You know, the Syrian different groups should get. Together and decide, like, whatever future they come up with. It became evident uh, at Geneva, I think, that they were pretty much back to square one the opposition demanding, you know, Assad's departure and Assad wanting, like, everything, you know, not not willing to compromise anything. So uh, I think at this point, uh, they decided to kind of push uh, forward with this process. And for now, uh russian party proposed 1700 uh people which is like a long <laughs> That's list enormous. yeah it's like several several dozens of uh, groups there uh, and that's, you know, not, not counting the ones that refuse to participate at this stage. So Turkey and Iran are currently reviewing this. So they – who they're comfortable with, who are not, they're not mm-hmm. comfortable with, mm-hmm. you know, and, and other – Okay.
1: So as a result of all of these processes, Russia's sort of placed itself at the center of the efforts to find a diplomatic resolution in Syria. What are the ultimate objectives that Russia's trying to obtain in Syria? What are the – Eventual goals and what are sort of its the minimum deliverables? Yeah,
2: (laughs) right. Well, that's a big question to me. That's something I'm still trying to uh, to figure out what the deliverables are. I mean, I mean, there's these kind of these broad picture things like. Uh, major points on the constitution, on how to, you know, get this political uh, settlement going, on how to set the timeline for elections. But I don't think we're even that close at this point yet. Uh, So, uh, and I think that, you know, for now, this kind of minimum objective is to make sure that Iran and Turkey stay uh, in this process and stay within this Kind of so that they
1: try and achieve their objectives through the diplomatic process right. instead of by right, because proxies. you know
2: Iran, and I think it kind of came to this point uh, where Iran has been uh, more suspicious, you know, and, and more careful about not uh, giving Russia too much leverage in Syria, where Turkey is kind of holding this parallel track discussions with the opposition, and opposition look, looks up to them. As the, you know, trying to empower them more, maybe, you know, there's kind of, they figure out that Russia has been playing, playing this both sides. Good, good cop to <laughs> Tehran, bad cop, but mm-hmm. ultimately, you know, it's... They, they, and with the Kurds. Getting, right. Uh, so, and with the Kurds, definitely. So, uh, it, it, it's been challenging. So, we'll see, and I think there is, there is some interesting... Uh, uh some interesting changes on in the US position in that some some of my colleagues did some reporting al monitors thinking that uh David Satterfield I think kind of came uh to you know push the opposition saying well maybe we should just let the Russians have this Congress in Sochi and so we see mm-hmm. what they're what they're gonna do with it and you know but then kind of demand more concessions at uh, the Geneva from them. So mm-hmm. we'll see how that's gonna play out.
1: Yeah. So it's become pretty clear at this point based on the results of the fighting on the ground that Assad seems like he'll be staying in power for the foreseeable future. Um does Russia have a view on whether he's the long-term answer or not?
2: Well, I be- I think they they don't really uh, necessarily see him as a long-term answer and I really it's hard to figure out what like when you're talking about timeline, what's long-term, what's mid-term, what's Short term, uh, it, it he I think the more uh, he is uh, kind of um, feeling dizzy with these victories, you dizzy know, of success, dizzy of Stalin success, right? Said. Uh, the the more he is uh, difficult, kind of to 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 make him flexible and things. At the same time, when Secretary Tillerson announced this uh, set of conditions for the United States to stay, uh, I heard some people speculate in Russia saying, "Well, now Assad will definitely use this." Uh, as another excuse to say, you know, I am a legitimate leader fighting more of this foreign intervention. So it's going to actually complicate the cause for the opposition even more. And ultimately, I think, complicate uh, the kind of corridor of flexibility for the Russians to work with Assad as well. Uh, At the same time, I think there was a certain period in in the Russian foreign policy in Syria where they were trying to figure out whether there really was somebody... Uh, that, some you know, alternative. Yeah, some alternative to it. They were looking in including w- among the Alawites and mm-hmm. others, and they just realized he, you know, they didn't have the guy who could have had that uh, influence on people, control the army, and things like this. So decided to stick, stick around with him for a while. Mm-hmm. But then it's really difficult to say in very practical and concrete terms like how much, how long that for right. a while is. And to what
1: extent does... Does Russia and do Russia and Iran uh, see eye to eye on this issue?
2: You know, I was I was in Iran in the end of uh, the past year, so it's very interesting that, uh, to my surprise personally, Iranians were pretty pretty flexible on 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 that issue. You would expect him them to be more, you know, like kind of rigid in their position than the Russians, but but no. But then again, I think it, it's 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 really hard. It, it it appears to me, you know, with this six plus years of the Syrian civil war uh, raging, the the very pivotal issue is still there, and there is right. no way to, to, Which, to, to go about
1: it. Right. I mean, I think here in the U.S., we were all pretty surprised when Russia decided to get involved militarily in in this conflict, in part because it wasn't clear well, what the exit strategy was going to be. And now, a couple of years down the road, I think we still have that question.
2: Well, it's OK, because I think a lot of people in Moscow also have that question, like, <laughs> whether what's the exit strategy, whether there's an exit strategy. Uh, I, well, in my, in my, in, I think uh, that there is some, this genuine desire in Moscow to uh, at least get... Get this on on a track of political settlement, mm-hmm. not necessarily solve it or end the violence there uh but to start, you know it doesn't mean like they're gonna leave Syria or the Middle East, but to start kind of monetizing uh, their achievements in Syria and other parts of the region.
1: Monetizing, you know. Meaning
2: like uh, in terms of different uh, political, financial energy deals, Mm -hmm. arms deals, things like this, like like kind of, you you know, uh, take an opportunity of the moment while Mm -hmm. there is this view of of Russia being a new Sharif in town, a new decisive force Mm -hmm. and things like this. Uh, But that, I mean, That is, of course, a very optimistic strategy, desirable. Uh, Maybe, you know, they would want to do – maybe, you know, again, it's really interesting to see if if a lot of people see the presidential elections in March as kind of a a new – a milestone after which, you know, there might be some differences in Russian foreign policy, how it's going to reflect on the domestics. And ultimately, I think Russian foreign policy in general and in the Middle East in particular uh, is, you know, makes sense only in terms if you can, you know, make some some, uh, profitable or important achievements for domestic politics for mm-hmm. like to use it as the sources of uh, economic growth uh-huh. and things like this. And uh, at this point, you know, it, it, unless Syria is settled, it will always be a little a little hard to move yeah. forward with this. Kind I mean, of...
1: That's kind of interesting that you say that because how – what are the economic advantages that Russia gets from its involvement in the Middle East? I mean, yeah, you can sell arms to, to Syria and probably to some other – states in the region regardless of whether there's a war going on. But beyond that, I mean, how does this affect Russia's right. bottom line? Well, I think
2: in, in Syria and in the Middle East in, in, in general is, is somewhat important uh, in that it is the place where uh, kind of three big things uh, got entangled, in, in, intertwined for, for Moscow. One is uh, Middle East as a source of threat. Uh, different threats, mm-hmm. uh, terrorism right. and, and others. Second is what what you're asking about these kind of economic things, and here I uh, I mean, uh, well, yeah, this military contractors. One thing, other thing is agricultural exports mm-hmm. that are on the rise. Third thing is this uh, nuclear energy industry development across the region. Mm-hmm. You see them building in in yeah. in, 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 uh, in Turkey and in, in Egypt. Uh, and uh, the the third big kind of element is the kind of Middle East as part of this new uh, world order emerging. You know, with mm-hmm. some critical uh, states there like Iran and Turkey being potentially kind of pillars of this new world, where you really need to have uh, good relations with them.
1: Yeah you know there's been a lot of discussion in foreign policy circles in the United States about Russia's involvement in the Middle East and a lot of the concern i think stems from precisely this issue that you know it's not just that Russia is propping up Assad who as we know a lot of people in the United States would very much like to see go but beyond that that Russia's intervention in Syria is part of this broader campaign at establishing Moscow as a a key regional player, a source of influence and leverage all around the region at a time when there are concerns about the staying power of the United States. So how important is that consideration and then how does it look to
2: the publics and and the governments in the Middle East itself? Right. Well, uh, that I think uh, is proposition is somewhat true. Uh, I would also mention that, you know, with these uh, sanctions. And uh, you know these uh, difficulties that there are in the relationship between Russia and the West. Uh, some of the countries in the middle uh, in the in the Middle East are are perceived as a you know investment opportunities. Saudis are important in making this oil prices mm-hmm. within the OPEC. Uh, these are these are important, and I think. Uh, the perception across the region now—it's been changing. I should—I should—I should, I should, I should, I should mention—it's—it's—it's it's, it's really been changing because, you know, shortly after the Arab Spring, uh, the view that Russia uh, had, uh, like why Arab Spring happened and seeing you know the U.S. hand behind it and mm-hmm. things like this—that didn't really—that uh, you know hurt Russian reputation. I think in the region, then you had the Syria intervention, which also didn't play well. A, for the first six months, maybe across the region, there was a lot of criticism. But then as it started to progress and make relative success, a lot of countries really changed their views and, and started seeing Moscow as a go-to, you know. Mm-hmm. And for now, I think- and go-to I, for what? Right. That's a good question. And now I, I would say, and there's pe- people are, are, are arguing about this in, in Moscow, whether it was like an objective or it's rather a side effect, you know, Moscow feels it's it's heard. Uh, Consulted with, even feared of, but then you have to really ask the question that you're asking like, what do they go there for? And in my view, many go there for uh, to solve their own either personal or tribal, even Mm. uh, or you know, interest. You see a lot of like uh, Palestinians group go to Mm. Moscow, you see the Houthis go to Moscow, you see different Libyan factions attend, and everyone's trying to court. Uh, the Kremlin, mm-hmm. you know, uh, hoping to get them on their side and, and and hoping to get them to solve their issues, uh, and whether you know that that's 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 interesting. It's if you come to think of it, but whether uh, Putin thinks, you know, how much of of the very Russian interest is in that? You know, mm-hmm. there is a lot of talk about. I think. Uh, about Russia becoming this, you know, with the Trump decision on Jerusalem, there was a lot of talk that Russia is now the only uh, impartial mediator in the Mm. Israeli-Palestinian process. And yeah, I think in theory, it is. Uh, It, you know, may be, you know, playing politically a little bit for some time. But at the end of the day, I think they understand that the problem is not so much with the mediator right. as within not, the parties. Right. So Russia's you not can't- not gonna be able to right. not, not influence this anymore than the right. United States You can influence so politically for a certain t- period of time. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the United States cut this uh, aid to Palestinians and Abbas, you could see Abbas is coming in a few weeks mm-hmm. to Moscow. Probably to get to, to ask, ask for ask money, for of course. Right. So these kind of things, you know, you start you start asking how much of really Russian interest these kind of entanglements, service, or they're more like detrimental in liabilities. Yeah, well, that's certainly
1: the narrative that you increasingly hear in in the U.S., and I think that's where um, a lot of the Trump administration's at least initial. Thinking about the Middle East came down. That why are we wasting all of these resources here? Why are we, you know, the ones who always have to be on the hook when problems arise? If Mm -hmm. somebody else wants to Mm -hmm. deal with it, deal with it. Um, Of course, I think the problem with, with that approach is that, as unstable as the Middle East is, if you have withdrawal of outside involvement, one, it encourages other outside players, including Russia, to. Become involved in ways where I don't think we can predict what the outcome is going to be, but I think it also upsets some of the certainties that we have within the region, and the different players then start. Um, they don't know where what the rules are for anymore, and I think that mm-hmm. makes for a, a less stable situation. No, I agree. Um, I will say though, you know, one of the things that has impressed me about Russia's involvement has been, you know. The ability to do something that the U.S. always struggled with, which is to talk to people and have good relations with people on multiple sides of all of these conflicts, right? I mean, you talked about the Houthis mm-hmm. going to to Moscow. Well, there's also been a, a big improvement in the relationship between Moscow and Saudi Arabia, uh, or you know, Russia's got a pretty good relationship with Israel. At the same time that it's working together with Iran and in Syria,
2: um, how how does Russia manage this, and is it sustainable? <laughs> Well, uh, I think this one of the uh, starking features of the Russian foreign policy today, which makes it in many ways different from uh, that of the Soviet Union, that today Russians are not approaching uh, their relationship with regional powers through the lens of uh, ideological loyalty.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, right. So that, that kind of makes it more flexible and uh it's actually I think one of the kind of key principles uh Russia has maintained throughout the this involvement in Syria or this quote unquote return to the middle east uh where it believes that you know keeping open channels with anyone as long as it helps you know uh implement your interests as long as it helps you uh do stuff on the ground is is important and uh definitely should be uh opportunities for it should be uh, really uh, sought. Well, I think, yeah, you mentioned Israel. And I actually would argue that uh, Russia's relations with to Israel today is so far, well, Russian foreign policy is... Uh, the most pro-Israeli in its in in the history, of Russia. given right, of history of yeah. Russia and in Israel, uh, for that matter, for you know, given the, the, the what the Soviets had with right. Israeli now, and I think there's also good chemistry between President Putin and, and Netanyahu. That's why I think it's also important to see what happens in Israel uh, mm-hmm. this year. Uh, whether Netanyahu stays or, or goes, and how they explain. And one, uh, you know, I was I
1: mean, there is some tension there, right? Because, of course, you know, the, yeah. the Israelis are not happy about the expansion of Iranian influence in Syria and, I know, have been mm-hmm. carrying out some military operations to keep Iranian backed groups away right. from the Golan Heights, for example. Right.
2: And, and, and definitely that. And, uh, and also, whenever Israeli security or intelligence are coming to Moscow, there's this. Uh, there are speculations that they're sharing some of the intel that they have on Iran to show that how – what Iranians are doing that hurts mm-hmm. Russia's position and interest there. And I think this is this, – I mean this – certainly managing this uh, war in camps is, all, is always different, uh, difficult in uh, the United States uh knows a lot about that probably. Uh, you know, the burdens of empire. Right. <laughs> and uh, at the same time, you know, I feel that Moscow has been very selective in where it wants to get involved and where it doesn't. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, you know, this trying to address the security concern for Israel, I think, has kind of been projected in Russian uh, – I don't I don't know if you can call it a line of promise right but uh they managed to persuade Iranians to keep this 40 uh kilometer uh, distance from the israeli border i mean you don't you don't it's hard to tell for how long it may stay mm-hmm. but so far it's been working to address kind of this israeli concern as far as say there's this talk about uh iranian presence in syria growing uh my view is that uh, moscow simply does not want to you know, uh, address that too much because it doesn't feel it's it's its problem. Right. As long as Iran does not that presence does not hurt Russia's own interests, and I think so far. Uh, I'm I'm not positive that Russians have, have figured out what level or what scale of Iranian presence is acceptable mm-hmm. to Moscow. That's something, you know, to think about this year.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's a big concern in the United States too. I mean, I know you had during the campaign here and, and even after some discussion about, you know, can you find a way to drive a wedge between Russia and Iran as part of this campaign to step up pressure on Iran. And now with the discussion about whether or not the U.S. is going to recertify the nuclear deal. I think that issue becomes more... salient again. I mean my own thought on this is that you know th- these are kind of separate issues. I mean Russia is not going to allow itself to be used as a a tool by the United States to to contain Iran. Um, but at the same time there's definitely some friction in that relationship.
2: Right. And and that actually uh is very much of a concern to Iranians themselves because when uh when you're having a conversation with with some of uh, of their experts uh the point to, you know, this danger that they see is a danger of Russia using Iran as a bargaining chip in its relationship with the United States, they mm-hmm. will point to a lot of things in the past as, you know, well, here was this thing and then Medvedev, you know, didn't sell us this uh, S-300 and things like this. Uh, I think it changed somewhat after 2014, after uh, Crimea in that, you know, Putin has... Uh, seriously started and kind of gave up and that's my personal view, gave up on the idea of kind of integrating to the West. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean he, you know, stopped seeking opportunities for some moderate cooperation. Uh, but this general view is that there are these new, quote unquote, emerging powers mm-hmm. uh, that are going to be pillars of the future world order. And you really need to have good relations with them. And, you know, the United States can no longer be trusted. So we kind of gave up on this idea. It isn't to do anything with Trump, I think, as many people might, right. might think. Uh, so uh, there is that. And also, you know, there is – it still is important, you know, Russia kind of str- – this managing between different camps is seen pr- pretty much as, you know, as the best way to – implement Russia's own interests because if you say, well, we're not we're not going to work with the United States, we're going to stick around with, with Iran, you end up in kind of their camp right. and risk carrying all the burden and all the mm-hmm. problems and all the conflicts that they want to have.
1: Right. Well, and it creates problems in the relationship right. with the United States Absolutely. outside the Middle Absolutely. East. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so Iran is one difficult partner, but let's talk about another one, which is Turkey, um, where there's been an <laughs> extraordinary kind of back and forth um, between cooperation, a confrontation, and now kind of cooperation again. Um, how much do Russia and Turkey see eye to eye on Syria? Um, and how sustainable do you think their general rapprochement is? Right. I think when
2: I mean, you're talking about this uh, beautiful relationship within the Astana. Uh, uh, trio, mm-hmm. uh, Iran he, he, with all the difficulties and, and the frictions that there there might be there is is, is more stable and kind of more predictable, and uh, Turkey is very difficult uh, because you know President Erdogan has. You expect you know uh, leaders and, and and countries when you're forecasting things you're coming out of some rational. Uh, choice behavior, maybe <laughs> you know, but sometimes you see it. It 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 it's not necessarily the case. Well, but I I don't mean to say he he's been irrational. It's just you know very. Uh, there there are some things uh, that are important to Turkey, and I think with this downing of the Russian plane, it's been a, a certain wake up call for the Russians. But it was important and uh, kind of instrumental in that Russians have learned to. Be more careful about Turkey's own near abroad, mm-hmm. if I can use it to speak in in in, in the Russian terms here. Uh, well, Turkey's
1: own airspace too.
2: Airspace and well, in that I mean that 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 area. Uh, so this that's that's uh, you know there's been some ups and downs, and I think one of the recent episodes where the Russian ambassador got summoned by a Turkish foreign ministry. Uh, and there was a lot of talk about a new coming, you know, conflict between Moscow and Ankara. I think it's very interesting that Putin and Erdogan got on the phone very quickly to do their little crisis diplomacy mm-hmm. timely before it erupted into something bigger. And I think that episode of this, the this uh, rupture of ties that Russians and, and Turks had uh, a couple of years ago, that was uh, you know important to that to that. Uh, to that kind of understanding of how we should be working, even though uh, Turkey is definitely not entirely happy with how its uh, opposition groups are loyal to it, are being treated, and the Kurdish issues, of course, there. So, how are the discussions in the in the
1: Astana format going with with Turkey? Does it seem like there's enough of an overlap to have? A,
2: a I think with Astana, solution? with Astana, it was more or less more or less okay. But even though you know with the Idlib zone, mm-hmm. uh, that's the problem still there probably. And there's been some speculation after this phone conversation uh, between Putin and Erdogan. You saw. Uh, some of the Syrian opposition groups uh, being on retreat and the Syrian army uh, taking over their positions. So the, some of the speculations were, uh, you know, that was probably Moscow's proposal for Turkey, you know, to kind of push the opposition to to retreat. So, but the question is, what did the what Russians give in return, it? right? And 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 uh, I think we we may probably see this question being answered within uh coming days and and see what happens in Afrin. Mm. Uh because as military experts suggest, if Turks are going to go after the Kurds and, uh, you know, the land force, the ground force may, may not be enough and they should should probably be using air force. But given that Russia is pretty much in control of the Syrian space, mm-hmm. uh, any of those attacks cannot happen without Russian, Russian permission. permission. Right. So that will be interesting to see if that speculation is accurate, if mm-hmm. Russians really gave the Turks the the green light in Afrin. And uh, how much of the of these uh, risks it, it can it can bear for Russia's own relationship with Kurds? Right, which
1: is also longstanding, and I think right. is one of the reasons that Turkey has to be cautious in terms of its dealings with Moscow because it knows that Russia has that that Kurdish card that it can play both on the Syrian side of the border, but also inside Turkey.
2: Right. Uh, absolutely, and that issue is, is still under. Uh, heated discussions uh, in the wake, in the run up to this Sochi Congress. Uh, We know that Turkey is opposing uh, participation of YPG Mm -hmm. uh, and Moscow has proposed some uh, alternatives such as the so-called Ma Cairo opposition group participating, and then it's pretty much made up of Kurds. So, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, there's this huge list of potential participants that still kind of under review this, get together to discuss Mm it.
1: All right. Well, Max, thanks so much for for joining us today. You know, I think the, the interactions between Russians and Americans in the Middle East are going to be one of the really important drivers of stability in the region, but also of of US-Russian relations. And I'm really glad we uh, were able to get you in here today to sort of give a Russian perspective on on all of these issues and what's going on, and maybe a little bit of of hope for uh, what things are going to look like in the future. Thank you very much. It was
2: a pleasure talking to you.
1: All right. Thanks for listening. Uh, That is it for our show today. Uh, There is a link to Maxime's bio in the show notes below.
0: And if you haven't already, please uh, consider, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a rating uh, and a review as well. And of course, if you're not on iTunes, uh, there's always Google Play or SoundCloud.
1: Um, and, of course, uh, please do continue to send us your mailbag questions to rep at csis.org with the words Russian Roulette in the subject line.
0: You can follow the program on Twitter, at CSIS Russia. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Olya Olikar, and Jeff is at Dr. J Mankoff.
1: Finally, uh, as always, thank you to everyone who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. That includes especially our research assistant and program coordinator, Cyrus Newland, and our intern, Claire Hafner, as well as the whole CSIS external relations and iLab teams.
0: Thanks for tuning in.